1990, then-President George H.W. Bush signed into law the Americans with Disabilities Act, now known as the ADA. It was landmark civil rights legislation. The ADA banned discrimination based on disability in all parts of public life. It also increased access and opportunity for people with disabilities across community life, including employment, across the last 30-plus years. That legislation was passed on July 26, 1990. Less than two months later, on September 4th in Long Island, New York, an 11-year-old girl named Brooke Ellison was walking home from her first day of junior high school. She was struck by a car and left paralyzed from the neck down and ventilator dependent. She joins us today to talk about her story, living with disability, and the future of health policy and medical ethics in her new book, Look Both Ways. From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is, a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the news stories that may shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Ursillo. We are honored to be joined today by Brooke Ellison, PhD. Brooke is an Associate Professor of Health Policy and Medical Ethics at Stony Brook University in New York. After her accident at age 11, Brooke went on to graduate magna cum laude from Harvard University with a degree in cognitive neuroscience. Brooke received her master's degree in public policy from the Harvard Kennedy School and her PhD in sociology from Stony Brook University. As a policy and ethics expert in stem cell research, Brooke has served on the Empire State Stem Cell Board, which designated New York's stem cell policy. She is also on the board of directors of the New York Civil Liberties Union and the Suffolk County Human Rights Commission. Brooke, welcome to The New Story Is. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Dave, for having me. It's a delight to be here. So, Brooke, it's been over 20 years now between this conversation and uh, this conversation about your latest book, which is called Look Both Ways, and the publishing of your first book, which was called Miracles Happen in 2002. What prompted you to write this second book and why, as you tell us in the prologue of your new book, you were initially of a mind for this book to not be about disability. Well, first again, thank you, uh, Dave, for having me on today to talk about a, you know, a book that means so much to me and um, I think is, a, is a, a very important reflection of who I am right now. So yes, as you mentioned, my very first book, Miracles Happen, uh, was published uh, when I was just 22 years old. So right after I graduated from college, you know, when I graduated um, from Harvard, there was a great deal of attention that was um, uh generated a lot of excitement and uh, you know, interest in the fact that somebody with a disability kind of as profound as my own was uh, you was graduating institution like Harvard uh, so um, you know, at, at that point in my life um, there was a lot of interest a lot of people looking to uh, to tell my story uh, but I don't know if I was fully um, aware of what it meant to live with a disability, right? Like I lived with uh, with disability for 12 years, but I didn't really understand what it meant to actually be disabled. I knew that uh, after I wrote that book, I wanted to write another book, right? Once you, once you become a writer, become an author, it kind of stays in your system, much like 
being a politician or running for public office, once you do it, it gets, stays in your system for a while, like a, you know, like a contagion. Um, I knew I wanted to write another book, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to say. Right? I didn't know if I just was going to have some kind of continuation of my life story, like the events that I had um, experienced over the years, or if I wanted to tell something different. Uh, it was right before my 40th birthday. I became quite sick. Um, I uh, I started battling a pressure wound, a pressure ulcer, and for those of you who are familiar with that, these um, uh, injuries or these uh, afflictions become quite detrimental to the lives of people with paralysis that become infected and um, you know often threaten the lives or even cost somebody's life who lives with um, with paralysis or with a disability. And uh, mine was no different from that. So uh, my pressure ulcer became you know, enormous. It went all the way to my bone. I had a bone infection. I was suffering all sorts of, of um, afflictions. And I said to myself, you know, I, if I don't take the time to write another book now, I might not ever have the opportunity to do that again and you know, stop, stop dawdling and just do it. So that following summer, you know, I locked myself in my bedroom and I said, you know, what are the important things that you would like to share with the world? I knew that, you know, I had um, experiences that were important to articulate, but then also really profound lessons that I had learned as a result of living with a disability that I think are applicable to everybody, right? Uh, lessons of hope and resilience and leadership and, you know, what it means to take on struggle every day. and you know, just as you had mentioned, right in the in the prologue of my book, like that is a universal experience, right? It is not necessarily a disability specific experience. It's a, it's a, it's a aspect of humanity that I think we all view as isolating, right? When we experience challenge, we feel like we are alone in those challenges. We feel like, um, sorry, just one second. We feel like we are marginalized or that nobody could possibly understand the experiences we're undergoing. But it's very much the opposite, right? Challenge in our lives is one of the, um, the universal things that we all experience by virtue of being on the planet. Uh, disability is one of those types of, of challenges. But at the same time, it's, it's part of humanity, right? It's how we live our lives. It's part of how we... Um, how we experience life, and uh, I wanted to share that. I wanted to share that we that people can uh, grapple with some of the struggles they face and go on to to live valuable, important, meaningful, rich lives, and that the lives of people with disabilities are are not tragic, right? Are not are not the um, you know the ones to be pitied, but often are the ones who um, who, who can take difficult circumstances and do something quite powerful with them. Yeah, so there, it sounds like there were two kind of tracks of, of of mind that you were in, Brooke, when it came to writing the second book. One was the t when you wrote your first book, you were quite young. And as you said in your own words, you weren't quite sure if at that time you even really fully understood what it meant to live with a disability, even though you had for quite some time. And there was also this um, this imperative, this uh, this drive to write your second book, not only because of some health complications that were arising, but it sounds like you also felt like there were lessons of value to 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 import to an audience 
I wonder if those lessons, which you mentioned specifically, things like um, lessons on on hope, but resilience, leadership, taking on struggle every day. You mentioned also in the book creativity and problem solving, uh, which are which are all a part of the the experience, I suppose you would say, of living with a disability like yours. It's kind of like fundamental to the experience. You have to be resilient. You have to uh, take on an era of self-advocacy in different ways. You have to take on struggle every day. In, you, in, the, in the last 20 years, how has your experience shaped the, the leadership calling that you have felt to advocate more broadly for these lessons to be taken on by people who, who may not have disabilities of their own? What was the, the spark there to become a, an advocate of something bigger than um, an, an advocate of, of a bigger mission, I suppose you should say? Right. Thank you for that question. I think it's, it's it's central to who I am. Right. So it wasn't actually until I was in graduate school that I I made that transition, that internal transition, almost a coming out process, where I I said, wait a second, all of the ideas that I had about disability up until this point, right, that disability is something that made me a weaker or more pitiful person, or something to be ashamed of, something to be um, embarrassed about. Like all of that needs to be thrown out the window. I had taken a class on leadership um, at, the, at the Harvard Kennedy School on a particular paradigm of leadership, which I discuss at length in my book, Adaptive Leadership, that really um, trains people to think about their, their position in the world, position in society, and how to become vocal about ways that the world needs to change, ways that society needs to change, and how we all have a voice in doing that. And if we don't understand that we have a voice in doing that, somebody else is going to make a change and possibly in, in a direction that we don't want the other world to go in, right? So we all have this activist role to play in the world. And I, when I graduated from the Kennedy School, I said, wait a second, how am I going to put these tools and this less, this information into action? So I started by running for political office, right? I kind of did something very uh, hands-on and tangible when it came to advocating for change. And you know, I ran on a plethora of issues uh, that kind of um, served as my, my uh, platform, but... In addition to that, right, just by virtue of running for office, I was making a, a pretty profound statement that people with disabilities can do these kinds of things. And um, my level of advocacy and activism in this space has not stopped ever since then, but it, it had to be built on my becoming aware that disability and um, is a, an important part of who I am, not a, not a weaker part of who I am, but a, a part of my identity and a part of my um, composition that actually makes me a stronger person. That was really central to uh, my role as, as an advocate and as an activist. Um, right now, I am a professor of uh, medical ethics and, and health policy, as you mentioned, but I, I take a very kind of affirmed, um, applied stance on medical ethics and ethics in general, right? We're not just talking about philosophical approaches to philosophical questions, but to actually how these questions impact people's lives. And I have directed that most centrally to the lives of people with disabilities. You know, there are many um, medical ethical questions that um, society talks about that have direct 
relevance and significant impacts on the lives of people with disabilities. So I kind of, that is one avenue by which I tackle this question. But then in addition, um, you know, there are many other activist issues around disability that I have chosen to be an active part in. Um, And then also in the different organizations of which I'm a part, the uh, Suffolk County Human Rights Commission, also the New York York Civil Liberties Union, right, advancing the issue of disability and all these different um, avenues that I have explored and networks that I have been a part of. um, That has really been a privilege and and, um, a part of my life that I never would have imagined. I never would have been... um, you know, a part of at all had I not experienced the disability that I experience right now. And that has been tremendously liberating, freeing, um, and extremely rewarding. And I think that's a part of disability that people don't fully understand, right? That you can continue to make an impact often in ways that you never would have anticipated before. And it's not always the deficit understanding of disability that I think we often understand it to be, but there are many gifts that come out of a life-changing experience like the one that I had undergone. Yeah, you just you described, Brooke, the the gifts that come out of a life-changing experience like you had. And I kind of want to open up. There's there's two questions I have in mind, and listeners to the show will know that sometimes I I get stuck in between asking two questions or asking them both at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) But the two questions that I have related to what you just described, the gifts, the opportunities that have come and how rewarding you have come to find the work that you do, which which is so directly impactful on so many. It has been very, uh, I don't know if, if it's appropriate to say indirectly impactful, but um, it, your your reach has has gone the world over, right? Uh, your The first uh, book that you wrote was adapted, your first memoir was adapted by the late actor, director, and activist Christopher Reeve of Superman fame. Uh, and you got to work with with Christopher before um, uh, his death. I think I believe he died shortly after the film was fi- uh, the film was was made, and just before it was released. Um, and that I know you still get uh, fan mail from people and and letters from people uh, because that movie is still available over the last twenty years. But specifically, there's there's two tracks that I'm following, and one is this idea of how non-disabled people or people without disabilities tend to um, stereotype and stigmatize those with disabilities in one of a couple of ways. And you describe this in your new book and you describe this dichotomy and um, of, of at once how disabled people are kind of heralded and expected to maintain this um, almost like superhumanity of like being an inspiration and being a model and almost like serving a the expectation of serving a certain inspirational role to people without disabilities in society and and how that can reduce somebody reduce somebody's humanity um in a really uh condescending way and i wonder if we could start talking about that first because there there is this um uh this tension that you write about of being someone who is both celebrated and yet because of your disability being rejected, subject of both praise and ridicule. And I wonder if you could either speak to your own personal experience in that regard, or if you'd be willing to tell us about the experiences that you've um, either witnessed or been exposed to through others in the disabled community of kind of walking in this tension 
of you know at once being um, heralded and being held as as an, ins- an inspiring account for others, and yet still based on systems and stigmas and stereotypes and lack of accessibility in our society even still today, um, being feared, being rejected, being subject to ridicule. What comes up for you as you hear that uh, that tension that you wrote about in Look Both Ways? That is one of the uh, the, the biggest struggles that I have encountered um, you know, in my life lived with, with disability, right? Kind of that juxtaposition or that dichotomous existence of being revered or being heralded, you know, as, you, as you mentioned, um, uh, and at the same time kind of dismissed, right? It's kind of how could, how could somebody play both roles? And you know, that's why I, I incorporated as much uh, sociology as I did in the, in the book, right? The kind of structural functionalist role that, that people in general play in society, right? The, the people's um, identities and positions in the world serve roles in, in how other people uh, live their lives and how they under, make meaning of their, their own existence. And people with disabilities are, are primary among them, where they are um, viewed as the people who do things that maybe other people don't feel like they would have the capacity to do, or their lives put um, other people's lives in perspective in terms of hardship, right? Like I hear this all the time. People will say to me, I don't know how, I, I don't know what I would do if my life was like yours, right? And almost this um, feigned praise, but at the same time, a bit of condescension that I think comes out of a, out of a, um, a statement like that. And I understand the motivation. I think that, pe- that people genuinely are well-intended in saying those kinds of things. You're offering me uh, praise, at least in some kind of you know, a bit of a backhanded way, like yeah, your life is, is so awful. How could you? Yeah, I think it's pretty great that you're doing what you're doing, right? So it's kind of this weird backhanded way. Um, but I, I, I think that that forces us to question how we place value on people's lives and what we ultimately do with that value, right? Is it enough to just say to somebody that your life is inspiring or that I recognize how difficult your life is and then not take the additional step and say, well, what could I do to actually make your life easier, right? Rather than just leave it at, you know, I know that your life is difficult um, and then not do something about it. And I think that that um, unwillingness to take that additional step kind of um, removes society or moves individuals from their uh, their position to actually make a difference in people's lives in meaningful ways, right? It kind of um, allows uh, society in general to just say, okay, I've done enough by saying that you're an inspiration. I don't, I don't have to, you know, I'm going to abdicate my, um, my ability to do something more than that. And I think when I talk to people with disabilities, I talk to people in general, and I talk about like what would make somebody um, be afraid of living with a disability. They talk about things like you're not being able to do the things I've always done in the, in the past. So you're not being able to have a relationship, not being able to, um, you know, to take part in the activities that I take part in. All of these things are socially constructed inabilities, right? And I think that we live in a world where we have just taken that as given. We believe that these are just realities rather than things that we can actually change if we had the, um, you know, the, the lead ourselves to have the wherewithal and the, um, the desire to change. Um, so I, that, that is where I think that kind of the crux of the issue is that people saying, oh, you, you are inspiration um, kind of denies them the opportunity to say, 
let me understand the ways in which your life is difficult and how can I make a difference in that? How can I advocate for things that could be beneficial to you to make your your life less difficult? You know, how can I be a part of a conversation about disability inclusion or offering opportunities for people who are denied opportunities or allowing them the ability to live um, at home in the community as opposed to having the fear of living in a medical institution like these are the realities of people's lives that make it difficult right not necessarily just the physicality of disability but all these other socio-cultural constructs or, or challenges in people's lives like that's really where the work is that's where the hard work is and i think people deny themselves the opportunity to really make a difference in somebody's life by saying it's enough to just say somebody's an, an inspiration. And like there's this um, movement within the disability community where people call, say that uh, being called an inspiration is kind of inspiration porn, right? Just kind of, um, uh, I guess, uh, minimizing the, uh, the actual lives of people with disabilities, right? Kind of uh, being patronizing and not fully understanding the extent of their lives. It's not, it's not uh, inspiration to just kind of try to go food shopping, right? That's not what's inspiring to people, right? That shouldn't be inspiring to people. But at the same time, I'm a firm believer that what is inspiring to people is you know, is the uh, ability of people with disabilities, you know, they, what they have to incorporate into their lives to move forward in a world that's not built for them, that's just kind of fundamentally not designed for them. Like that is and ought to be inspiring to people, right? That people with disabilities have this um, ongoing resilience to battle a set of, of social circumstances that make their lives more difficult. But in that very same acknowledgement, it ought to be the acknowledgement that we as a society can do better. And I think that's where the gap lies, that everybody has a role to play in how disability is ultimately understood and how um, there's a socio-cultural component to disability, right? It's not just the physicality of disability, it's all the additional social issues that society can actually take an active part in trying to reduce or trying to make better. And that's where we fall short. I really appreciate the idea of, uh, I really appreciate the idea of um, the feigned praise and condescension, as you described it, Brooke, this, this amalgamation. Uh, I almost kind of heard it in, in terms of that I, that I know um, a lot of friends working in anti-racism will use um, like microaggressions in that there's like coded intention to calling somebody inspiring, which is externally complimentary. I, when, I, when I heard you say it, I kind of like imagined as if I was hearing it from a vantage point, of course, that I, that I do not know personally myself and, and, and cannot know. I almost heard it as like a distancing. Uh, I almost heard it like it, the, it was a compliment, but it was coded distancing, kind of like either asserting or affirming the like a mental or emotional distance from somebody else's experience in a way that I can only imagine is further isolating for someone when grocery shopping is described as inspiring when uh, and when the steps uh, or the intentionality is not taken by by others to take on, as you called it, the, the willingness to take an additional step to either make someone's life better or to, to inquire, right, to engage in conversation, to be curious about how to um, be a part of enriching or supporting or making more equitable someone's life who is who is experiencing a disability in 
a society and in a culture that is either averse or uncomfortable or uh, at the very least very inaccessible, has made disability very inaccessible, um, or I should say has made accessing life very difficult for those with disabilities. And I do want to ask you about that a little bit, Brooke, before we talk about that willingness to take additional steps. After all, we're, we're, this is the show called The New Story Is. Um, I've heard you say before in other interviews that you feel like a lot of people's discomfort, so I should say um, people, uh, non-disabled people, that their discomfort interacting with people with disabilities seems to be around their own projections and fears and discomfort around their vulnerabilities or their human frailties, as if they're projecting their own discomfort, maybe about their own mortality, right? Just the eventuality of our all facing our own deaths as human beings, but also frailty and and um, vulnerability that that is, I would personally editorialize and say, just a part of the human experience, right? That we'd rather not face and rather rather avoid. I wonder if you've ever given any thought to that notion through the lens of our society and our culture's general discomfort with vulnerability, period, or our repulsion to things like frailty or vulnerability, and for that matter, our, our you know non-relationship to death and mortality. I wonder if you've given that any thought from a from a philosophical lens. Mm-hmm. Right. No, very much so, Dave. And I appreciate that question too. Yeah. So I think um, within the United States, we have a, a, a society that's built on self-reliance, right? And that stands uh, in diametric opposition to how many people with disabilities have to live their lives, right? Um, and that was an understanding that was difficult for me to come to terms with that my life was going to be very much the opposite of that, right? Wherever I uh, ultimately ended up was completely the result of my dependence on other people, right? So not at all the self-reliance perspective or orientation on things. And I think that is how many people with disabilities live their lives, right? In opposition to, you know, the go-to-itiveness or pulling myself out from my bootstraps kind of perspective on life, but one on, like, we need to to have a mutual understanding of our mutual necessity to rely on on one another, right? Like, that is how people with disabilities live their lives every single day. Um, so where I, I ultimately ended up and where I am in the world right now is, is a function of understanding that and not feeling embarrassed or ashamed about that, but actually quite proud of that. And I think that many people, um, unless they are forced to admit that, don't want to admit that. They don't want to understand their lives in terms of, of reliance on other people or dependence on other people, right? They want to say, okay, well, where I am right now is because of my own hard work and who I am and my own sense of strength. Um, so I think it's it's I think it's both of those things, right? Our our um, unwillingness to be vulnerable or to understand our lives in terms of vulnerability, but also understanding our lives in terms of how we're going to need to live it in communion with other people. Um, that has been that was a struggle for me uh, for many years after my accident. That I was I needed I needed to, to shake off the um, the understanding that I was a weaker person because I needed help to get through the day. And I think if we as a society were more, more welcoming of that understanding, we would be less afraid of 
aging, right? The kinds of changes that our lives are going to invariably um, have to undergo as we get older and the kinds of levels of dependence we're going to need to um, integrate into them as we, as we get older and, and how we accept care and how we offer care, right? And we live in a society in the United States where finding caregivers is very, very difficult because, you know, for that very same reason, it's hard to be the person who is offering other people care and compassion and, and giving them the opportunities to make the most of their lives because we're trying to do that for our own lives right it's hard it's hard to make that that mental shift that we can do that for somebody else and not feel like less of a person as a result so um and you to be on the receiving end as well right that we can uh, understand our lives in terms of those who have helped us get us to where we ultimately end up being and uh, that was an important lesson for me and one of the i think central messages of look both ways is you know, understanding that and and being very kind of deliberate and intentional in how i recognize the role that other people have played in my life and getting me to uh you know through each day yeah, it creates such an existential dilemma in living in a society in which we are so entrained and uh, enculturated to believe that self-reliance, like you mentioned, like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, the myth of the, the self-made person, it's often called the self-made man, right? Um, yeah, and and in living with that uh, conditioning, almost like a propagandistic if that's a word, conditioning that this is the ideal. And either, I mean, I, I believe we all have to learn eventually that interdependence is a necessity in life, that independence actually isn't. It's but but the, there's so many flavors to our life, both mythologically, um, certain social values and expectations that are coded into our, our politics, um, and, and a lot of toxic stories like toxic masculinity. Um and it is really quite jarring to have these stories and, and stories that are embedded in things like, I guess you could take it in a way in different superhero stories. I think they're getting more nuanced these days where we, we understand that superheroes aren't superheroic, that, that, that they're expressing certain um, values and struggles that, that what it means to be human, which I think of only because we were talking about Christopher Reeve earlier. But the the point of interdependence and receiving care and giving care and recognizing our fundamental dependency on one another. I kind of want to take that idea, Brooke, if we can, and transition towards um, what I found to be really interesting in reading Look Both Ways. You mentioned, uh, and we mentioned, that you're an associate professor of health advocacy and medical ethics at Stony Brook University, where you also earned your PhD in, in Long Island and New York. Uh, and I understand, based on your book, that your office today is in the same building where you were rushed at age 11 after your accident. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And in that um, kind of irony, there's this kind of very strange existential question. You know, it's so it's so strange knowing that you just a number of years before um, now. I was fighting for my life and now doing something that was that was never expected of me at all. Uh, yeah, in the same building, exactly. So it's very strange. Yeah, and and I know that there were people who actually rendered your emergent care in taking care of you uh, at a time that was. I know the the you know everything was saying that it was very bleak. Your odds of survival, and uh, I know that there were people who were taking care of you who. Um, were working in the building when you came to work in the building and when you were earning your PhD. So there was, there, there was, I just get this 
visual and this impression of like that feeling of interdependence, the, the dependency that you had as somebody who was being rendered medical care, emergency medical care in a place that you would return to where you are now passing on knowledge, wisdom, and experience to others. Um, and some of those same people who, who uh, helped you are still in the building too. Um, it's, I don't know, it speaks to me of this, this fundamental interdependence of what you're seeing. And it's something that maybe perhaps because we're not all exposed to it or reminded of the interdependence that we all have upon one another. But this seems like quite an example um, for you of uh, living this and being reminded of it perhaps every day. What is the experience like for you, you know, now these years later, um, as a health advocacy and medical ethics professor in what you're passing on, I suppose, to to your students? And um, what is that experience like for you? You know, with the um, circular nature of my existence is perhaps one of the most obvious uh, examples of our mutual dependence, right? And one of the most interesting parts of my life. Yeah, I never would have imagined, and certainly, you know, my physicians who were treating me at the time of my accident, you know, th- whether or not I was even going to make it from one day to the next was highly in question, uh, let alone becoming a professor and teaching the very experiences that I was undergoing at the time to future healthcare professionals. Like this is all just sometimes it's, it's gobsmacking to me, you know, that this is actually how my life has evolved and turned out. Um, so yes, so you know, I, 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 as I write about in my book, you know, I, I traverse the halls of a uh, health sciences center and a and a hospital that you know in which I was a patient, have been a patient, you know, many times since then. Um, and the questions that I talk about as a professor of, of medical ethics or healthcare ethics or bioethics, depending on, you know, whatever the nature of the, the conversation is, um, are the very same um, experiences and questions that my family and I were asking ourselves at the time of my accident. You know, what does it mean to live on medical technology? How do we uh, decide when um, the time is no longer um, uh, when somebody's life you know, ought not to uh, continue to have medical intervention conducted on it. You know, how, do, how do you um, assess that or make that judgment you know, when there's so much going on, so little that's known from one day to the next? Um, how do you ascribe life or worth to the life of somebody who's, whose life is totally different than it had been? Right? Like All of these questions are fundamental questions to medical ethics, and often they're debated by or answered by people who don't, who actually haven't had those lived experiences. And I think that my um, perspective on these kinds of questions is a very valuable one. Um, I think it, it offers a, a flavor or a tone that possibly it doesn't get um, it doesn't get offered in, in other settings. And I, I don't take that lightly. I take that very seriously. In fact, that um, when we talk about uh, you know, end of life decision making or talk about physician aid in dying or physician assisted suicide, right? Or how people um, grapple with tremendous changes that their lives have undergone after a disabling disease or condition. Um, 
like to have been able to uh, experience life on both sides of those questions, I think is a really valuable insight to have. And I, I don't think my students uh, miss that. Um, I think that they, they understand that, you know, that having the perspective of somebody who has actually lived these kinds of things is a very valuable one. And I know that um, my students gain a lot from, from these kinds of conversations colored by my own experiences. And I'm, I'm, I am very willing to talk about deeply emotional and deeply personal experiences that my family and I have undergone, like, you know, my own struggle with these kinds of medicalized understandings of disability, right? The disability is a medical failure, and perhaps the life of somebody with a disability is, should not be viewed in the same light as the, the, the relative worth of somebody without a disability, right? Like, we see the um, the after effects of those kinds of questions to this day, right? Until the uh, the days of the pandemic where uh, we're dealing with scarce resources um, in medicine in particular, in healthcare in particular. And when you have scarce resources, who gets triaged care and who does not, right? Who gets access to care and who does not? And people with disabilities, even during the time of the pandemic, right? Even you know, 30 plus years after the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act, right? People with disabilities are still viewed as less than everybody else, as their lives is not as good as everybody else. And like changing that conversation, changing the, the, the tone of that conversation is extremely important because it has practical consequences on people's lives. So these are the kinds of things that we talk about. And to, to be able to, to assess that and kind of suss it out from a very personal perspective has been a gift that I never would have imagined myself having. And um, I think that talking to future healthcare professionals offers a, a very unique and valuable lens into the lives of people with disabilities as, as important parts of society. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that conversation around the challenges that medical professionals have in making these ethical considerations. And I know for me personally, as someone far outside of um, outside of the walls of of being a medical professional or being exposed to like the difficult decisions that medical professionals have to make, uh, and end of care life and and uh, decisions and things like that. The last couple of years, I've been very privileged to. Uh, be exposed to and develop interpersonal relationships with a small network of healthcare professionals through my partner, who's a, a, uh, a healthcare professional herself. And just by witnessing, being witness to them in their day-to-day -day struggles in work, how many of the decision, like basically everything comes down to an ethical decision um, and, and an ethical decision challenge. It's, it's like, it's omnipresent. And I never realized that. I just kind of always think, thought that like medical, de medical decision makers, um, just decide based on expertise and like the data and the research, but it's actually so much more nuanced than that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it is, and I, I don't want to, to sound, um, callous or anything like that, but I, I know that it's an extremely difficult and gut wrenching position to have to be in to make some kind of triaging decision as to who is going to get care and who doesn't, right? That, that I do not take that for granted at all. I completely understand that it is among the most difficult decisions that any healthcare professional ever has to make. And I'm sure many hope that they never have to make it, right? Like I want to be perfectly clear about that, but I think also, um, um, what is far too frequently the case is if judging the value or judging the worth or the um, the level of care we ought to ascribe to somebody who does not 
live with a disability, right? A, a, a young, virile um, you know, man versus somebody who lives with a disability, right? Somebody with quadriplegia like my own. Um, I think that the value would be placed on the person without the disability, right? I think that the um, understandings or supposition of the difficulty of the lives of the person with with a disability is so much is so overwhelming is so overpowering the assumption that their lives are already miserable right this person's life is already so difficult mm. let's not even you know continue or to um you know continue the suffering Right, so there have been instances where people with disabilities' lives have been ended almost as a an instance of mercy killing. Right, that that has been a a term that's been thrown around. Um, there was a one of the only um, mass shootings in in Japan was in a um, a home for children with disabilities, and the motivation was um, thought to be mercy killing of, of these children or these uh, these people who live with disabilities, right? So that this idea that people people who live with disability are suffering is so deeply embedded in our culture that is hard to extricate ourselves. It's hard to make our decisions without that frame kind of clouding our thought processes and it has practical consequences on how people um, ultimately are either treated or you know provided care or not provided care where we have these models of disability that have framed our thinking for a very long time with the medical model being first among those right that disability is some kind of medical problem rather than something more than that and um, that has this your practical implications on the healthcare decisions that we make. Yeah, that is a great transition, Brooke, for for what may be our final question as we're quickly running out of time. Um, and, and like I often say, I could continue to talk about these these things forever. It's so thought-provoking, and I thank you for, for sharing your wisdom and, and experience with us. Um, you mentioned this idea, the presumption that's so baked into society that those who have uh, or experience disabilities – uh, are suffering. They're necessarily suffering. I wonder about that story, that perception, that idea, and how it may affect the ongoing implementation and development of something like the ADA. I know you've talked personally in the past about the ADA, that Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990, which, as we mentioned, established legal prohibitions uh, against discrimination of Americans on the basis of disability and um, also kind of standardized um, uh, accessibility, um, you know, in, in the physical environments, public environments, and so forth. I know you've you've spoken about the ADA as largely being perceived by a certain segment of the population um, as being like obligatory and like necessary just to fulfill a legal mandate, rather than something like an opportunity to create you know, wider, greater accessibility standards for people with disabilities and per- perhaps those who don't have disabilities. And I wonder if there is um, that expectation uh, that that kind of holds back that like opportunistic approach, that creative problem solving approach to make life more accessible for for like I said, that probably all people, not just those with certain disabilities. Um, if there's that like insidious belief, thought, idea that 
well, these people are suffering anyway. So like, what does it matter? Uh, if the, if that is a part of what's holding back the ADA from being engaged with more like creative vigor and imagination and, and maybe for that matter, the ADA being advanced. I'm curious if that brings up any thoughts um, for you based on your experiences and, and your knowledge of the ADA and um, uh, being, being an expert in your own right. Thank you. Yeah, brings up a wealth of thoughts for, for sure. Yeah. So just as you mentioned, Dave, um, the ADA was largely crafted on a kind of compliance or mandate framework, right? So it's like essentially what are the basic uh, or the minimal amount of uh, modification we as an employer, or we as as a business need to do it or make in order for somebody with a disability to not, you know, press charges that were not accessible, right? Like it's kind of this really minimalistic uh, compliance-based approach to accessibility. And you, I, I don't want to minimize the um, impact of the ADA, right? It was completely life-changing. My life is, is what it is because it's been lived under the, um, the aura of the ADA for the entire time I've lived with quadriplegia. You know, I've, it's been under the ADA, so I'm deeply thankful for its, its passage, but I think it has a long way to go in changing that conversation from just mere, like, let's provide these token gestures to one of opportunity. And I think that that creates a vast misunderstanding of the value that people with disabilities actually have to the world and the kinds of contributions they can make, right? That making a business or making a, um, a, a site of employment um, accessible is actually to everybody's benefit, right? Not simply the people who live with disability, not people who are going to live with disabilities beyond them, but actually everybody, everybody benefits from having the um the vantage point or the inclusion of somebody with a disability in their conversations, right? It's, it is a unique kind of epistemology that you develop by virtue of living with disability that is to be valued. It has a lot of benefit to it. And um, unless accessibility is looked at in these terms, it's going to create these very same kinds of problems that you mentioned, right? Keeping people at a distance, right? Understanding accessibility as kind of a chore that we have to do just to av avoid a, you being fined or being um, held you know, liable for a lack of, of, of changes that we want to make or understanding people with disabilities as not really belonging in the first place or having this ongoing um, definition of disability that includes a lack of productivity or lack of ability to be employed, right? So if, if that is our understanding of disability, why would an employer try to make um, accessibility changes for somebody with a disability to begin with if the presumption is that they don't belong in the workplace to begin with, right? Like all of these things are deeply inculcated in how we understand people with disabilities and disability in general and breaking out of that, you know, those boxes has been very difficult. So I think it comes down to changing, making a change in that in that kind of uh, narrative and that kind of public conversation from one of let's just provide the bare minimum to these poor suffering people to wait a second. I am missing out by not being inclusive of disability and we are we are becoming a lesser society by not adapting so that people with disabilities can be a part of the conversation to begin with. Like I the people who I know who live with disability are among the strongest, among the most creative, are the embodiment of all the ideals that we have about how humanity ought to live its life and live our lives and 
unless we you know, keep that in front and center, we're going to vastly misunderstand the relative worth and value that people with disabilities have in a larger conversation. And Brooke, as a final question, I'm wondering about, uh, I oftentimes conclude interviews by asking our guests what new story they would like to see become the norm, um, whether whether for our conversation that's about disability advocacy or disability rights. I, I'm I'm curious about, we talked earlier a little bit about the importance of people engaging with those who have disabilities in ways beyond that like microaggression distancing of like, you're so inspiring um, because it, it coded I, because I can't believe or I don't want to ever imagine having to be in a situation where I'm where I assume I'm only ever going to struggle, right? That social construct and the cultural construct. I'm curious about how you would recommend those of us who, you know, selfishly speaking, uh, uh, do, do not experience disability in terms of being that proactive force of changing the narratives of our time to be not only aware of our own biases and misconceptions, is it as simple as engaging and advocating on behalf of those with disabilities in our own communities and backyards? Um, when we see, you know, a building that, that is not easily accessible, when we, um, I, I'm just kind of curious to roll that out for you, that, that red carpet, so to speak in how, um, how all of us can engage in ways that are both, you know, whether interpersonal, but also like policy systems and um, furthering the importance of the need for life to become more accessible for those with disabilities and just generally speaking, what comes up for you? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I, I, th- I think that we tend to view uh, accessibility and, and as a result, the lives of people with disabilities almost as an afterthought, right? We do our work, we do you know, what we need to do for the world, and then we think about disability almost you know, after that, rather than understanding disability to be a part of humanity, right? To be a part of, of the general human experience and thinking about how we need to make um, life accessible for these people right from day one, right? Not being able to um, move forward on policy measures or design really in any way without incorporating people with disabilities right from the get-go, right? That they are an, an important and valuable part of how the world operates. And unless we think about them from, you know, from the start, then we're going to do something that's going to be either reactionary or... Um, half-hearted or you're not fully fleshed out, you know, half-baked. So thinking about disability right from the get-go, and you don't necessarily need to know somebody with a disability in order to be thinking about these kinds of things, right? Um, Just having accessibility and disability accessibility in in specific as a part of how we go about our daily lives, right? And, And not thinking that it has to be a personally motivated a journey, but something that we just we believe is is the right thing to do, no matter who we know or what our lives might be like. And then that said, get to know people with disabilities, right? Like offer a a um a hand to them. Uh, you're not necessarily a hand, a helping hand, but like a hand of friendship, right? Get to know somebody, learn a little bit about their lives, so we're not presumptuous in what their needs are, what their experiences are like when we either legislate or we try to make changes, but we actually have um changes that are deeply community engaged and based on people's actually lived experience um 
and yet we all fill different roles in the world and we all have a role to play in how we can either be welcoming or not to somebody with a disability, right? And just taking that additional step and, and having that level of awareness that, wait a second, I actually have a role to play in how somebody feels welcome to where, um, what opportunities are afforded to that individual. Like we all actually have that skill in our, in our, in our, um, capacity if we actually make use of it and you know, to deny ourselves of that level of, of skill, I think, um, denies ourselves an opportunity to really make a change or make a, a difference in somebody's life. So just to be aware of that and never to minimize that. Brooke Allison is the author of Look Both Ways, her new memoir, and she's an associate professor of health policy and medical ethics at Stony Brook University. Brooke, thank you so much for joining us. I found this conversation to be so enriching and um, really motivating, and I really thank you for your time and all the work that you've done to, to, um, to educate our future healthcare professionals and beyond. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. And thank you, as always, for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. If you're feeling generous today, if you're feeling good, if you enjoyed what we talked about, please follow or subscribe to our show, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so you never miss a new episode. You can also leave us a rating and review on those platforms. Smash that five stars for us to help others know that what we're doing is legit and worth listening to. It goes a long way into helping us find new listeners. Thank you for being here. Until next time, story on.